0: thought should be given to the more extensive use of the Word of God among us. We know that by nature we have no good in us. If there is to be any good in us, it must be brought about by God. To this end, the Word of God is the powerful means, since faith must be enkindled through the gospel, and the law provides the rules for good works and many wonderful impulses to attain them. The more at home the Word of God is among us, the more we shall bring about faith and its fruits. Philip Spainer. Hello, everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Zell and Heidi, and we're going to talk about Spainer. We're going to talk about Pia desideria. We're going to talk about Pietism. We know you've been waiting for it. Zell has been chomping at the bit to begin the discussion, and so here we are. Zell and how are you? I'm
1: doing great, Willie. Today is a very bitterly cold kind of day. Uh, I think it started out at zero and then got colder as the morning went on, which is a little a little unusual even for North Dakota. So but it's it's all good. Um, I'm enjoying the winter weather and I'm still glad to see the snow on the ground, which we didn't have last year at this time. What about you, Willie?
0: Well, as I record, it's in the mid-60s here in Arkansas, but uh, later in the week, it's supposed to get uh, quite a bit colder, and they're expecting possibly ice or a wintry mix, so we're going to find out. I'm fully prepared for nothing to happen. <laughs> that's That's been kind of the the case here. Um, hey, we're going to get some snow. Nah, just kidding. So we'll see if we've got ice or not, but we're recording you know, so that if we're, whether we're iced in or not, you will have your word fitly this week.
1: Yeah, I mean those couple of weeks where we had to to take off, you know, I was I wasn't feeling well and I'm I'm thank God that I'm, I've recovered now and so we should be able to to move forward. But I we're we're glad for all of your guys' concern and we look forward to recording here in the month of February as well.
0: Yeah, yeah, we love the Word Fitly Nation. Um they will they will check in on us if uh, if there's a gap, making sure that we're that we're alive and everything. So we do we have the best fans or what, Zelwin?
1: We do have the best fans. It's true. Hands down.
0: Hands down. The cult of word fitly endureth forever. So thank you all for your listening and for your support, for your encouragement, for your shares. We do, we do appreciate it. We also want to apologize to you who are using Google podcasts because it appears that uh, in your feeds, the real word fitly us is being replaced with a counterfeit word fitly so um, if you have any issue with google podcasts or if anyone says uh, hey what's going on with word fitly why were they replaced with two women and and the symbol is now a bowl of apples we've had some issue with google podcasts you might have to switch to itunes or podbean or something else if you've been using google podcasts so
1: or at the very least bring it up to Google bring it up to us we'll try to fix it if we can but yeah we've we've had troubles with yeah. Google
0: before we're we're fully prepared for the day when we're just going to have to mail out cassette tapes
1: <laughs> what a day that will be
0: <laughs> what a day <laughs> revival will happen soon after <laughs> well z we've got a fun episode today uh we're in your wheelhouse here your uh, expertise we're going to talk about one pietist in particular if you think it's fair to call him that, he is considered the father of Pietism, but Philip Jakob Spener. And so, why don't you tell us a little bit about where we're going to be at in history today, and what the context is for this study?
1: Yeah, so Spener himself is basically a product of the 17th century, right? Uh, Spener uh, dies in 1705, if I remember it correctly, and so he his entire life is lived in you know, the late 16, mid and late 1600s. And it is a time of uh, great upheaval, a time of a lot of troubles. We're going to talk about some of those troubles here as we go forward. Um, but so spener is trying to address some of these issues and also to lead the church in a, in a positive direction. And I know that he is something of a controversial figure, especially among Lutherans. Because Pietism generally gets a bad rap, but we have to remember that Pietism in general is a very broad movement, and even some of Schleiermacher's uh, most violent uh, opposition certainly still held him in very high regard. So we want to consider consider Schleiermacher as he is in his own time, without trying to be colored too much by what would come later in history, especially as we go forward. Do you think that's a fair introduction, Willie?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And we will do an episode on the later variations of pietism, but the word pietism, so if you're a Lutheran, listen to this, you might have heard that word. If you're not a Lutheran, you probably haven't heard that, most likely. Um, It is used as an insult in a lot of Lutheran circles. To call someone a pietist is to call them essentially a a Pharisee or a legalist or something like that, uh, a, a prude, or somebody who doesn't believe the gospel almost. It's such a loaded term that it almost, it's lost all teeth because of that, to accuse someone right. of being a pious, It's like saying that, you know, all Lutherans approve of transgender ideology and homosexual marriage because the ELCA exists. Right. You know, and we wouldn't want to be treated that way. We have to always explain, well, okay, this is actually what lutherans believe and so we're kind of trying to do that with these pietism episodes not necessarily well certainly not endorsing everything especially as it develops but to try to put it back in its historic context and to understand it Um, instead of just this knee-jerk calling someone a pietist because you know they live a certain way or or maybe you know actually believe in the third use of the law or something like that (laughs) so you have to understand why it develops it doesn't just happen there's right. a reason why a movement wanting to push people toward greater a greater understanding of the Bible and a greater uh effect of the word in their life um why that would come about. And we are living in a time though where ideas and we'll talk about them at length in the episode but ideas like you should read the Bible more, you should study the Bible privately. These are all things that Word Fitly has been about since the beginning. But some people and even some modern Lutherans you know, they're not going to explicitly say, oh, well, you shouldn't read the Bible at home, but they, they kind of pretend that way in a way, right? That, no, just come hear the sermon and be done. Just, just, just preach on the lectionary and that's enough. And that's what we're coming into, uh, this nascent movement in the 16th century here, or sorry, that's going to say, um, or 17th century, sorry, that's going to say, uh, hey, maybe that we have the Bible now, maybe we should preach on more of it, maybe we should read more of it, uh, maybe we should trust that word to work. Um, <laughs> not a what bad idea.
1: A, what a strange thought. And maybe another thing that I should emphasize here at the beginning, just, I know this is all kind of preliminary, but it's important because there is so many misunderstandings about pietism. Within the movement that we call pietism, even from the very beginning, there is at least two major strains. What, and I would call them like churchly pietism, as well as radical pietism. And um, maybe, and basically to the difference between them is that the radical, uh, the radical pietists are the ones we typically think of as being the separatists. They are the ones who typically have very extreme ideas. You know, the whole church is corrupt. You want nothing to do with it. So let's just come out. We're going to do our own thing. That there is a strain of that that does exist. But The churchly pietists, like Spanier, on the other hand, are seeking reform. They want to fix things, but they don't want to separate. And so in that way, what Spanier is trying to do is to fix and to reform, to change things for the better, rather than just trying to tear it all down. So having that distinction in mind, I think, will help us as we move forward, because it will help us to see that not every pietist is the same.
0: Right, right. Well, all right. Well, let's talk a little bit then about uh, Spener and the world that he is coming up in.
1: Okay. Well, and I suppose that would involve a discussion mostly of what's happening in the 17th century, right? And the this is, like I say, this is a time period of great upheaval, uh, upheaval in terms of war, upheaval in terms of the economy, upheaval in terms of thought. It is a very transitional period. We are leaving the, you know, the Renaissance and the Reformation in that time period, and we are moving towards what will eventually become the Enlightenment in the following century. So this is a time of great change. And as in all times of great change, we see a lot of problems arising, right? And I think probably the the biggest catalyst for this, uh, a lot of this change, is, of course, the Thirty Years' War. What is the Thirty Years' War, Willie?
0: Well, I thought you were doing the history part. <laughs> I'm trying to bring
1: you in here too,
0: but yeah. Uh, no, okay, so we need to realize that after the Reformation, the world does not enter into a utopia. By no means. But by um, by the by the let's say 1618, 1648. That's going to be your Thirty Years' War. Holy Roman Empire, one of the most disastrous wars in European history. Let's see how do I how do I explain this. Do I want to do? I, do you want me to explain it in religious terms or uh, or political terms? Because this is where I always have trouble. If I say it was holy Lutherans fighting unholy Catholics, everybody will cheer me. If I say it was greedy princes fighting greedy princes, the Boo. people, will, yeah.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, I think I think we want to talk about just in very broad terms, and I'll I'll chip in a little bit here too. For whatever reason, it was fought. And I think you can make a case like you did, Willie, that, you know, it's either it's both religious and political, probably yeah. leaning a little bit more towards the political, if,
0: if we want to be honest. Yeah. And the problem is, when you ask me a question, especially in this period of history, I'm like, well, it begins in, you know, 1552 before we get to 1618. <laughs> right. But it is sort of a culmination of many religious wars that are fought. And it's, it's the worst of them as right. far as the Christian fighting Christian.
1: Well, and the Thirty Years' War is also arguably one of the most destructive wars, if not the most destructive war in the history of the world.
0: Well, certainly if, in, in the history of Europe. Well, yeah, okay, fair. But
1: I say that because, proportionally speaking, more uh, more people died in as a result of this war yeah. than even the the World Wars.
0: Yeah, it's the, between five and eight million. That's right. what they estimate,
1: right? And proportionally, that's you know anywhere is like fifteen to twenty percent of the population dies, right? Which is just tragic, staggering. I mean, and 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 a lot of the problem was is that uh, the war itself was fought by other nations fighting each other on German territory. Yes, I mean it's not Germans fighting Germans; it's like the Spanish and the and the Dutch. And the Swedes and everyone else coming in and fighting all these other groups, these mercenary groups, while the Germans themselves are largely just being affected by it.
0: Right. By this point, um, you have the principle, uh, you know, uh, Cuius Regio. So basically, you know, the, the leader right. determines, the king determines the religion. Right. And so this is how religion comes into play. You have Lutheran states versus Catholic states, and all of this very much intertwined with the land war happening, too. Right. Complicated even more by the rise of Calvinism and Reformed theology.
1: Right. right. Well, and especially because uh, and the Peace of Augsburg previously, it had basically tried to settle the issue by saying, okay, we'll be religiously divided, but it favored <laughs> Roman right. Roman Catholics more than it did Lutherans. Yeah. And so there was always this sense in which Lutheranism was kind of hanging in this uncertain period, like, are we going to make it or not? I mean, obviously God is going to bring us through, but it was still, it was uncertain for the longest time. And as a result, you know, all of these tensions keep coming up and that all of this kind of explodes into this 30 years war, which, like I said, devastates, devastates the Holy Roman Empire as a result.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And um, maybe we should just do an episode on that one day, because you really got to go back to the Schmalkaldic War and everything else to try to be like, how does this? How does this even happen? How do we right. even get there? How do we get from nailing ninety-five theses on a door to eight million European deaths? <laughs> you know, in yeah. uh, in just over a century, or a century it's, and a half.
1: It's a very, it's a very brutal period. Yeah. It really
0: is. You know, uh, but subject for another day, this is the but this is the the world into which Spainer is born.
1: Yeah. Well, and OK. And so as a result of that, you have some other issues. Of course, the war brings with it plagues. The war brings with it disruptions in the harvest. Soldiers were acting very poorly at this time because like many in many historical wars, soldiers weren't paid by the king. They were paid by what they took after a battle which led them to become very kind of brutal kind of people, the kind of people that were not the most moral, right? And so this, this sort of devastation has created a a kind of moral vacuum within Germany. That is part of what Speiner is trying to address is the, the the moral issues that have arisen because of this brutality, because of all of this upheaval.
0: Yeah. I mean I mean you see a similar thing happen to Germany. Post World War One and the degeneracy mm-hmm. that she falls into, and then the degeneracy—do I want to say post World War Two? Is that too loaded to say? <laughs> but uh, you know what I mean, right? <laughs> Let the reader understand. <laughs> but where, you know, wherever you have this widespread kind of devastation, it's it's interesting. Uh, wherever despair is present, faith is absent, and so you have all of these, all of this kind of wickedness that comes in to fill that vacuum, right? Right. Uh, that's why we should pray for peace. Uh, it, it troubles me to hear people praying that persecution come down upon us and and bad things come upon us so that we'll grow closer to God. We might, but you might also uh, become an agent of the devil in times like that, too. There is something to be said about persecution leading to a stronger faith, and I do believe that, but it's another thing entirely to say that we should pray for it.
1: Well, and there's many accounts historically— of people in times of persecution who do not remain faithful, right?
0: Many so will not, fall away. Yeah. Many will
1: fall away. I mean, that's the whole reason why you have issues like what is it, like Docetism and stuff like that. Yeah, or, you know, the, the, these who fell away in a time of persecution, Donatism. Donatism, yeah, Docetism. I can't even keep my yeah. keep my problems straight. <laughs> you know, so I mean, it's not a it's not just an unqualified blessing. It is a time of great trouble as right. we see going on here but well i think it would also be helpful to talk about uh, some of the intellectual tensions that are going on at this time too willie sure go ahead because it's not just the white not just the devastation of you know the, the countryside you know from war that's the problem it, this is also a time of intellectual upheaval uh, brought about i would argue by some of the problems created some of the questions created by the reformation itself Um, Because when you have such a tremendous change within society, like, you know, a, a religious division now, that's going to lead to other kinds of questions. Well, how then do we determine what is actually true? How then do we determine, you know, how we know anything? Because now if we have this basic fundamental division of where we can't even agree with each other as Christians, well, how do we know anything at all? Right. And the the most famous expression of this that comes about from this time period is, of course, Cartesianism, um, brought about by the, the, the philosopher René Descartes, you know, who famously said, I think, therefore I am. He was trying to find some kind of certainty on which to base his knowledge. And as he's going about all of these questions, he finally whittles it down to that famous dictum. You know, the fact that I'm thinking at all gives me something that I can finally rely on. And that's how I know that this is actually true, because I can finally reduce it down to myself. But the problem with this kind of thinking, of course, is that it ends up uprooting everything. Right. Now people are wrestling with these questions of, well, how do we know what is true? How do we know that this is what this actually means? How do we know that the, even that the Bible means what it
0: says, right? And so, and, what do you think that's doing then to the to the average Joe on the street? You know, the guy who's just going to the brickyard to right. make bricks. You know, what what is that doing to him? Because it's going to be the philosophers which will influence the clergy, right? And what are the clergy going to be giving these people at mass?
1: I mean, in some cases, they were just becoming straight Cartesians. You know, they were thinking and arguing the way that. Descartes did. And I think the, the the result of all of this is a general confusion about what is truth, about how do we know things, and also the confusion that was coming about that we still see today, you know. Well, why are there six Christian churches in a town of a thousand people? You know, yeah. why are we divided among ourselves? How do we know what is the truth? That sort of thing. It's a question that we still wrestle with.
0: Oh, very much so, and and it's one of the uh the common critiques of Protestantism, right that if the, if the laity can have access to the Bible, if anyone can interpret it for themselves, then we're going to have all these divisions There's a, There is a fair point there because we do have you know a lot of denominations, right. not as many as what um, they want to say there are right but uh, <laughs> but there are divisions, but the Bible also says there must be divisions among you. It, yeah, it becomes a question of authority. I think it becomes a question of clarity right. of Scripture as well, uh, the place of the Word of God, and which is what we're going to see a little bit later in the episode. But, I mean, it, it is a valid question, and one we should tackle. How do you know if a church is true? How do right. you know what, what truth is?
1: Right. Well, and as a result, I think the ultimate final result of this problem is that Because truth is in question or how we know things is in question, it leads to a further degeneration of morals. Because if you're not really sure why things are true or how you know things are true, you can very easily fall into this, well, it doesn't really matter what we believe. I believe what I believe. You believe what I believe. You know, what you believe. And so we'll just kind of agree to disagree. So it doesn't really matter what we actually believe which in turn leads to it doesn't matter how we actually live. Yeah. And so I think all of these tensions together create a climate within the Holy Roman Empire in the 17th century that is just generally demoralized and generally degenerating. And that is what Spener is trying to address.
0: All right, we're going to talk about Spener specifically right after this here on A Word fitly Spoke. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Selwyn Heidi. We're talking about Philip Spaner and the uh, foundations of pietism. So we kind of got the historical background, a, a very confused time for the church, a very disordered or perhaps distressing time. Well, now let's talk a little bit about our main character then. Who is Philip Spaner?
1: Yeah, so Philip Jacob Spaner is the... I guess you could call him the father of German Lutheran pietism. He is the, the one to whom most people will look as the beginning of this movement within Lutheranism. Uh, he's also the one who is going to have perhaps the, the greatest influence, and it will also be an influence on major later figures, which we may talk about you know, in, in future episodes if we want to go this route. But he is certainly the most important figure for our consideration today. And uh, Philip Spener himself was born January 13th, 1635. His family was generally well off until he got a good education early in life and was heavily influenced uh, by reading, especially the readings of the, the Puritans who were uh, coming into German translation at the time. And he, as a result... Begins his life with a keen interest in uh, what it means to be a Christian, right? Do we want to say anything about the Puritans in passing here, Willie? Or?
0: Well, I mean that's a that's another episode in and of itself. But I mean, I think it's fair to say he does. He's going to influence them. He's going to influence Wesley. You know, how far they influence is a subject of debate, right? And when we begin, and when we say he influenced Wesley. He influences the Puritans. Perhaps they get some of their heart. Oh, from the, the other way
1: around. The Puritans influence him.
0: Or sorry. Yeah. Uh, when we say the Puritans influence him and then he in turn influences Wesley, excuse me. Uh, yep. The whole point is does, for some Lutherans, that's going to be a big red flag. Why would we read someone who was influenced by the Puritans? And why would we read someone who helped shape John Wesley?
1: Well, I mean, because he still has good things to say, and I mean, I suppose you could even make the argument that why would you read Luther when he's influenced by the medieval mystics? I mean, very yeah. openly influenced by the medieval mystics. So, right. just because yeah. he's reading something doesn't mean that it's bad.
0: Yeah, exactly. We want to be very careful with that kind of thing. It just is what it is. And and again, you know, what are what are we going to reject here? What are we going to embrace here? are you rejecting the Puritans because of some caricature of them? Because if you want to reject the Puritans because of their Eucharistic theology, I can get behind that. If you want to reject the Puritans because you think they were a bunch of prudes, I would have to reject that. Um, The picture that you have of Puritans is broadly inaccurate. You know, we we tend to think of them as some kind of independent fundamentalist Baptists, right? Um, Right. (laughs) Like, like as if they didn't drink or that they didn't, like live relatively normal lives and so and also puritan like pietist is a very broad term that's but it's another term where and and puritan is one that's even come into english that will as a pejorative that everybody understands to call something puritanical has a universally negative connotation in english now right Right. Um, because it's it's basically shorthand for some kind of religious tyranny and and so that word has then been poisoned. So not everything the Puritans said was wrong. There are certainly many, many areas in which we could rightly critique them. But if you're just using it as shorthand for a legalist or something, well, that dog won't hunt. They're they're stricter. The pietists are stricter. But I got news for you. Martin Luther would have lived a stricter mode of life than you or I would have. Right. And we forget about that. We We think of, you know, the... Bad language Luther used it sometimes, or the insults that he used, or and, and think of him as this extremely impious man, and that's just really not the case if you look at his sermons and if you look at what he's saying. It's amazing the kind of picture you can get from someone if you just read what they wrote. <laughs> you know? what, what? What a thought, Willie. Really. What a yeah. thought. And, and that's kind of and that's kind of a good <laughs> caution as we talk about Spainer and as we're going to talk about his six proposals and things like that. Uh, what? is actually going on here. What does Christianity actually look like? And we want to imprint this sort of modern kind of antinomian, very loose Christianity onto Luther or the Lutherans, and it just was not the case. Go go read his sermons on usury. Right. You know, go read other things he says ethically. I mean, there are things we could quibble with, I suppose, but not those two things. And, and But we would now. We, we We would consider him a legalist. Well how dare Luther say that usury is a sin? Don't haven't they seen my portfolio? Surely God has blessed this.
1: How dare Luther say that you shouldn't go out dancing? You know, I I went out dancing it was just fine.
0: Yeah, exactly. And so uh so they get because of the really famous Luther quotes like well while we sit and drink Wittenberg beer the word did everything and so they they literally interpret that, they interpret that literally like all Luther was doing was sitting around drinking. And that wasn't the point. Uh, so, you know, there we go. And this is sort of a redefinition of terms, of reorienting. So, all that to say, yeah, uh, the Puritan influence—we got to be—or his influence on the the Puritan influence on him—we got to be careful because that's automatically going to turn people off when right. they hear that. Right. Maybe it should, maybe it shouldn't, but it is what it is.
1: Well, I mean, and if you want to be specific, the the, the major Puritans who influence him would be like Bailey. Uh, Sondholm and Dyke, which aren't always the biggest names in Puritanism, but I mean, they certainly are influential at this time. Uh, we can't also neglect the the major influence of Arndt, Johann Arndt, who wrote True Christianity in the Reformation period as a Lutheran, and he, he also has an enormous influence on Spener as well. I mean, Arndt has an enormous influence on everybody. I mean, Arndt is even though true Christianity has been largely lost to us today because it was wasn't really translated until relatively recently, Arndt was one of those books that had the influence on par with like uh, Pilgrim's Progress. I mean, it was just a book that everybody read. Everybody knew. You know, if you had two books in the house, it was the Bible and Arndt, kind of
0: a yeah. thing. So, kind of a, like a like a Matthew Henry for the English or something like that, or Pilgrim's Progress. Yeah. <laughs> You just don't want to admit political progress, is what is what this comes down to, <laughs> right? I mean, as Baptists go, Bunyan's Bunyan's—he's a good one. He's a good one, I <laughs> suppose.
1: But anyway, all that being said, uh, Spainer goes through his life—you know, normal academic education. Uh, he goes to Strasbourg where he receives his uh, degrees. He's also heavily influenced by some, you know, what we would consider to be Lutheran Orthodox theologians at that time, uh, Johann Schmidt, Sebastian Schmidt, and Johann Conrad Donhauer, if that means anything to some of our audience. Uh, But he's basically, he's completed his theological studies by the year 1659, and uh, he later will defend a thesis on Revelation in 1664 when he's also married on the same day so all that being said a pretty standard education for his time and he also ends up then receiving a call to serve in frankfurt in 1666 as the senior pastor even though he is quite young and it is here during his tenure in frankfurt for the next 20 years uh, that he is going to have most Uh, this is where he'll write Pia Desideria, for example. This is also where he will begin his catechetical labors, because he's well known for his catechism, as well as uh, his ideas of how uh, catechesis should be performed. And uh, it is during this time, like I said, that he writes Pia Desideria and begins to think about some of the problems that are going on within his time period. So this is the the period that we're going to be focusing on since we are talking about the Pia Desideria. Is there anything else that you want to add to that, Willie, before we move forward?
0: No. Um, and just for clarification for the audience's sake, Pia Desideria is a book by uh, Spainer that is going to detail right. his uh, his ideas for reform. In the third segment, we will, we will talk about it at length, including uh, how you would best like to translate that title because I do not like the heartfelt longings of uh, Fortress Press here. Uh, but anyway, so what is Spainer seeing then? He's a, he's a pastor. He's he's well read, he's educated and he's going to go out into a church, you know, where you know, we're well you know into a uh, the Protestant era, I guess we'll say. What's he seeing out there? By all by all accounts, the Reformation happens. So every uh, plowboy should be reading the Bible and have a perfect knowledge of Christianity, right? Sure. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I mean, because this is still very much a time period in which education is on the rise. I mean, it's it's improving, but it's nowhere near the general education that we would see, say, in our age. You know, I mean, you have these more public-like schools that are already starting to come into existence. But generally, people are not at that level of literacy just yet. And so even even despite the uh, the efforts of what's going on from the Reformation, it is still a time in which there is much to be improved. And what Spanier is encountering then is a populace, like I said uh, in the first segment, who are largely demoralized, who are largely degenerating because of the influence of what what was going on in culture, in history at that time. And I would also say you you would see problems with extreme drunkenness, for example. Uh, You would see problems with a kind of brutality of of manners. Uh, You would see problems with a general indifference towards what's going on in the church. Especially because uh many of the clergy at this period uh, were preaching in such a way that was, I wouldn't say incomprehensible, but it was often not to the level of what the people needed at that time. The clergy, of course, were very highly educated, and you know they would they knew Latin, they knew all of these languages, they were highly versed in theology, but they were having trouble translating that in a way that became intelligible to the people. And this is a common complaint, not only in Lutheranism, but in just Christianity in general at this time. I mean, for crying out loud, you have uh, Swift, for example. Uh, Jonathan Swift, I think in the following century, if I remember correctly, isn't Swift in the 1700s?
0: Um,
1: Complaining about this very same thing, where pastors were more or less reading these very dense sermons Without any real concern for uh, the needs of their congregation, so you have a church which is not speaking in a way that the people needed, and a people who are already kind of tr- burnt out and degenerating because of what's going on around them. So it's it's just it's a giant mess, is what yeah. it
0: is. and and this this happens in the with the sick with the secular nature of history. You, you see this happen time and time again, uh, a degeneration of culture and a need to reform. And we are living in one of those cycles right now with manners completely out the window, drug and other substance abuse in our own nation at record highs, Mm -hmm. and perhaps sermons that people cannot understand for one way or another. You know, part of it they can't understand. We always hear as well, you know, they don't have a biblical vocabulary. And that is true. But that also tells us then that we need to speak in a language they can understand. We're going to have to simplify or quit using shorthand, things like that. And of course, you know, teach the Bible. We'll get more into that when we talk about Pia Desideria, though. Right. Um. But this is, the church is, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, and the church has existed in times like Spaniards before and in times like now, where they must speak to a culture that cannot receive, naturally, uh, what we are going to say. And so we need to, one, understand it's the work of the Holy Spirit doing it, but also make it, of course, accessible. You know, we understand that that God works through the Word, but we also understand that He does that through human means, so we have to speak. We couldn't get up and preach in Greek to an English congregation. Right.
1: Or preach in German to an English congregation, or or whatever it may be. And a lot of the issue... That we see happening was is that the clergy being so highly educated uh, were often like quoting for example they would pepper their sermons full of quotations uh, they would speak in latin or in greek or in hebrew or whatever in the pulpit even if they went on to explain what it meant i mean it was why are you doing it is the question and again maybe this is a third segment question to deal with but are you doing it just to impress, or are you doing it to teach? Because there's two different; those are two very different things, right? Yeah. But anyway, so the point being that he writes the Pia Desideria, this this proposal, and I guess I would translate it as like pious desires.
0: That yeah, would be pious desires idea. is the natural one. <laughs> that is the that's that's how you should translate that. But um, for whatever reason, I it. Oh, I've got it here in front of me. I, I I think that in the the English translation from what sixty four or whatever, uh, I think they call it heartfelt longings. Yeah, and I'm sorry, it's just cringy. <laughs> I'm not actually sorry.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's kind of a weird way to translate it. But the book itself is a very short, I guess you could call it treatise, which is basically calling for reform. Uh, talking about the issues that that he saw happening within the church at the time, and then also laying out a number of proposals, which he considered to be the way forward. So this isn't just lamenting, oh, well, the times are terrible. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? He's basically saying, okay, yes, things are bad, but here's what we can do in order to remedy some of these issues.
0: Yeah, here's how we get at it.
1: Right. (laughs) here's how we get after
0: it. And that is an important thing because it is very easy to fall into the trap of just bemoaning the state of the church or the state of the world. Mm -hmm. When what we really want to be doing is actually trying to better it. And because of our theological shorthand, we fall into the trap of, well, God will take care of it. Once again, forgetting that God raises us up to to take care of things and to bring about these things. Uh, and And we only look at reform movements typically through their failings. That's kind of the problem. We see how things sometimes blow up in the end and think, oh, well, if they'd never started working toward fixing something, this wouldn't have happened. Right. And we need to be careful about that. Because I think, like you say,
1: the natural reaction is maybe even to say, oh, well, Spainer's just fed posting, right? He's not doing anything that's any good. This isn't going to go anywhere. Um, he's, He's just trying to entrap us. But that's, I guess I think that's more reflective of the cynicism of, of our age than it is of what Schmeiner is actually trying to do.
0: Yeah, and we are very cynical. And it, well, it's just like this passing rain language that we take from Luther and and it we, it is now being used as an excuse to not evangelize in America or to not do anything. Well, it it's said in a defeatist way, I'll put it that way, to where well the gospel's a passing shower and so the passing shower is leaving America and going somewhere else. I'm like, yeah, because we're sinners. Maybe why don't you pray that God brings the rain again, that we might flourish. Why don't you go out there and preach, and maybe God's grace will rain down upon us again.
1: No, it's so, done, Billy. Really. It's all it's done. done. It's
0: done. It's past. What can we do? Lord, do we not testify at courts enough in your name? Lord, do we not win enough cases in your name? I feel like we're <laughs> missing something here. Well, I was going to say, we do do plenty of good work, and but when we say the word does things and we need to rely on the word. We need to actually remember that and actually trust it. We don't just need to say it in a way and think that, well, oh, well, I'm preaching. So that's good. No, understand that the Lord will work through his preached word. And even though it looks bad now, you know, be willing to to stand upon it and, and make, make statements that the world is going to hate stand contrary to the world. Let's not just make statements and make uh you know, bold stands where it's borderline safe because of the base. You know, um, when you're talking about actual reform and something like, even something like Pia Desideria, but to make it more palatable for the audience, even something like the small catechism or something like that, understand it's going to rattle some cages and understand that you're doing something bold. If you're actually going to believe that God is going to work through these things and work through his word, don't act like, I don't know, don't act so surprised when he does. And and when you don't have confidence in it working, don't act so surprised when it doesn't. Because when you don't have confidence in the word, what's going to happen is you're going to shrink from preaching that whole counsel of God. And it won't get preached and therefore it won't work because you're not going to be preaching it. Uh but actually, you know, believe that it's going to do it and you might actually have the boldness enough to, to preach that whole counsel. Yeah. I'm not saying your faith activates it. I'm saying faith means you won't be afraid to preach it.
1: And we shouldn't be, even if if somebody calls us a fad for, you know, proposing any of these things, we shouldn't be afraid of that. We need to do what needs to be done. And that's, that's really the key. Although maybe it's just a way of closing out this section. I do want to talk about very briefly how Pia Desideria was was received uh, by his time. That way we can focus on the book itself in the third segment. So... And that, basically, this book was generally very well received, even by those that might be a little bit surprising. You have, for example, Abraham Kalov, who is well known as being highly contentious. Kalov, for example, is well known for wanting to add to the Book of Concord in order to bring down Calixtus, who he was arguing with at the time. I mean, when the dude tries to add to the Book of Concord, to make a point, you know that this guy's intense. Yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs>
1: but he thought the book was very, very good and was something that was well worth receiving and considering, and the proposals were, were generally quite good. And Spainer also, as a man in later generations, until, in fact, very, very recently, was ge- also generally well-received. I mean, Walther, for example, spoke highly of him. Other people, I mean, you think of like the, the complete Timoth, uh, Timotheus Veranus, uh, who, which was written specifically against pietism, speaks uh, very highly of Schweiner, for example. So he is a man who is generally well regarded, generally well received, even by those who would otherwise be opposed to him because of the things that he's proposing. And I think that's something to keep in mind as we go forward. And it's also something to consider as we consider what this means for ourselves.
0: All right, we've got to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken right after this. Welcome back everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Zell and Heidi. We're talking Philip Spainer and talking Pia Desideria. Well, we've talked about the book quite a bit, or at least the history leading up to it. So Z, let's go ahead and talk about the book itself.
1: Sure. So the book itself is divided into three main sections. Uh, the first section being what he considers to be the problems. And so Spainer is talking about what he calls the defects in the clergy, defects in civil authorities, defects in the church. Basically, the all the issues that he sees in his own time and what's going on, the reason why he's writing these proposals in the first place. That's immediately followed by a second segment, which he calls the proposal for better, you know, the possibility of better conditions. Uh, basically, that things don't have to be so terrible and that we can actually do something about it. It's kind of a a very positive way of looking at things and saying, yes, things are bad, but things could be better. And that's kind of what that segment is doing. And then the sixth and the third segment, which is probably the one that you want to focus on the most, Willie, is his actual proposals for making these changes. Like, how can we actually get to something better? What can we right. do? And the, the the six proposals which he gives, I'll leave to you to summarize, Willie, but this is basically okay, here's what we can do,
0: kind of a thing. Yeah. Well, all right. So it's going to be widely read. Is it put into practice in his time, do you think?
1: Yes. I mean, I do think that some of the things that he's proposing are put into practice, especially within his own ministry, like his his own practice. He's certainly doing a lot of these things. But a lot of the things which he's proposing are not just unique to his own time. And I think that's what makes the book so useful also for us, because he's basically saying things like read the Bible, (laughs) you know, things that are, are true for every time and age. And I do think that it is something that we should
0: consider as we move forward.
1: But let's let's actually get the proposals themselves. What are the six proposals, Willie?
0: Okay. Well, we'll just start and we'll start and discuss. So we'll go one to the other. Uh, the first proposal okay. is that thought should be given to a more extensive use of the Word of God among us. Okay. Okay. So pastors should preach from more than just what's in the lectionary, and that Christians should meet to study the Bible, or the or that even home devotion. And we'll talk about that a little bit more as we get into it. But but yeah. the idea that there should be more avenues for the for use of the Bible than just the Sunday sermon or just the lectionary. In, you know, in, in short. So, okay. thoughts on that, Zelman?
1: Well, I know, for example, that Schaeffer himself uh, put this into practice within his own life. He began preaching on texts, not typically on Sunday morning, but on other days, uh, other than what was appointed. Yeah, I, I
0: think that should that should so, be clear that the Sunday service does not change. In the strainers, like he's talking about extra services or extra opportunities,
1: right? And so that's something he certainly puts into practice. And he also is a great. He's also doing everything that he can to support you know the laity getting into the Bible more as well.
0: Yeah, and which kind of brings us into the second proposal, which is that there should be the establishment and diligent exercise of the spiritual priesthood, right. So we, that should be emphasized. That, and and so with these two things, um, I know some of our pastors listening and probably rightly are concerned with a de-emphasis of, of the distinction between the clergy and the laity, which is not really Spainer's point. No, it's his point in this is to show the layman that he has an active spiritual life that he should, you know, participate in. <laughs> read the Bible. Yeah, he should read the <laughs> Bible. Yeah, and and. On the flip side of that, too, that the clergy should recognize that their calling involves Bible study, teaching, reproving, and consoling. Right. And a personal, dedicated life. That that the clergyman's job is not merely academic, but he has a spiritual life to attend to as well. And then back to point one, the small groups thing, that, that makes some pastors nervous, and I completely understand this because... As the small group culture develops, especially in our day, sometimes those become substitutes for church Bible study, substitute for personal Bible study, and even most disastrously, substitutes for church. Right. Spainer is not trying to minimize the importance of the church and the liturgy. He is trying to provide more than that and right. beyond that. Uh yes it all revolves around the church it revolves around the reception of the supper everything like that the preached word of course but in Spainers thinking more of this is not a bad thing uh more time in the word more instruction in the word a greater understanding of the word is essential to a healthy christianity right right
1: I was saying and maybe especially with the small groups thing um you know this is the beginning of what some have called conventicles which, again, also has a bad rap in many circles, and for good reason, because of the abuses that can come from them. It is worth noting that even though Spanier did begin some of these things, uh, he eventually ended them because he saw the abuses and what it was leading to. So, to Spanier's credit, he saw how it could be abused, and, and as a result, afterwards, didn't promote these things as heavily, and yes. instead went in yeah. other directions. Now, yeah, even
0: so, he himself recognizes the abuses that can happen here,
1: right? So that being said, it still is helpful to encourage a kind of devotion, a kind of intense study of the Bible, and however that may happen. So it might not have to be a conventicle per se or a small group per se, but it is the the core of it. His whole point is to get people into the Word so that they're studying more and more of it.
0: Right. And so related to these two is the third proposal. So I'll just read his actual words here. The people must have impressed upon them and must accustom themselves to believing that it is by no means enough to have knowledge of the Christian faith, for Christianity consists rather of practice. Uh, What he means is to have only knowledge of the Christian faith. (laughs) Of course, knowledge is essential, but if you have merely head knowledge and a faith that's not put into practice, then what what good is it? And he is particularly concerned with uh, constant squabbling and disputes that we spend a lot of time in theological debate, but very little time talking about theological practice or putting it into practice, which which is something that's happened in every era of the church. Sure. Where we forget that right doctrine is supposed to lead to right practice, that it should inform our lives. That the mere formulation of doctrine and the mere ability to articulate those formulas is not enough. That is not the same as saving faith, and it is not the same as a living faith. That a robot, a text-to-speech program could accomplish that. Right. And and yet sometimes we we do think that whether implicitly or explicitly, it is it is sufficient to just have a right knowledge, and it's that's that's really a Judaizing kind of thing too. That's a very close cousin to "Are we not all sons of Abraham?" Yeah, so so that that's what he's talking about here. Uh, and what would that look like, Zelwyn? I mean, well, I mean,
1: you see it happen all the time, where either someone will say, "Oh, it's sufficient that I believe," therefore, I don't need to go to church. You know, that would be one example of this. You could have uh, someone who will say, you know, I am Orthodox in all of my ways. You know, I am very thoroughly educated. I know what it means to be Lutheran. But then they go out and lead completely dissolute and, you know, reparate lives and as a result show that they haven't understood any of it. You know, the kind of people who will go on and on about their orthodoxy, but then get, you know, just raging drunk on more than one occasion would be one example of this. I mean, it's just a complete disconnect between your profession of faith and your actual life of faith. Is well, I mean, it's a against.
0: question of going on and on about our good doctrine and then being just a, a stubborn refusal to preach that gospel outside of a pulpit, for example. Sure. You know, um, or, or, through, or through some other means. And I know it makes people uncomfortable to talk about because we tend to think of this in terms of its abuse cuz you're going to hear it and think okay now Willie's telling me that if I don't personally witness to the guy in front of me at Starbucks or whatever that I'm somehow sinning. And I'm not necessarily saying that, but I'm saying necessarily. That, well, but at the same time if if you feel like if if you feel embarrassed at sharing the gospel like that, then what good is your pure theology cuz you're not going to share it with anyone? What what you know. good is pure theology if it's not taught and preached in whatever context? What good is it? Uh, which kind of brings us then to proposal 4 and i got to paraphrase this one a little bit so we must be aware of how we conduct ourselves in religious controversies with unbelievers and heretics we must remind ourselves to the duty uh, to our duty toward the erring or the erring so he's going to say we must first take great pains to strengthen and confirm ourselves our friends and other fellow believers in the known truth and to protect them with great care from every kind of seduction So he begins very strongly with, we're not going to compromise doctrine here, and we want to protect our flocks from that. And yet we have a duty, first of all, to pray earnestly that God may enlighten those in error with the same light with which he blessed us, may lead them to the truth, may prepare their hearts for it, or having counteracted their dangerous errors, may enforce that with the true knowledge of salvation in Christ. So that when dealing with a heretic, we must pray for them, we must want to see them come to a knowledge of the truth. You know, speaking in our own context, I feel like oftentimes we're just seeking to get theological points, and this is not a Lutheran problem. Calvinists do this. Online apologists of every stripe do this. It's like we're just trying to get our jabs in and not contending for the faith simply because people's souls are at stake here. Right. And so we must must approach the heretic and the one in error— As someone who needs to be corrected because we want to see them turn to the truth not because we want to be proven correct yeah there's
1: there's a tremendous difference between wanting to get a mic drop you know to win your to win the argument and to actually go into this contending and saying here's why you're wrong but it's so that you can see the truth yeah right because so often like you said especially on the internet i think this happens a lot when we are disconnected, we're not face to face with each other, which the Internet breeds. You immediately become suspicious. You immediately are just trying to win for the sake of winning. You know, <laughs> these long arguments on a, a comment thread, for example, about some point, And then what's the point of all of it so that they can finally say, oh, well, I just don't want to talk about it anymore. Or are we being are we trying to to make these arguments in such a way that. We can actually win over our opponent and to see what is actually the truth,
0: right? Right. And, of course, that isn't to say that there isn't a time for harsh words or for difficult conversations or for pointed language even, but it should still all come from a place of love and concern right, for that person, not simply to be right, not simply for the sake of triumphalism or anything like that. Right. Proposal five, maybe the most controversial, I don't know. Essentially, that both integrity of life and education, including the spiritual development, must be considered necessary when calling persons to be pastors. Sorry, that's my best attempt to uh, do justice to the fifth proposal <laughs> and and summarize it you know, briefly. Because this is where you're basically judging if someone's a Christian or not, and it makes us all uncomfortable, and it should. But the idea that a candidate for ministry's spiritual life should be considered along with his education. That education enough is not entitlement to a religious calling.
1: Let me put this in a quick context real quick, just so that we understand where Spanier's coming from. In his time, being clergy was akin to kind of like a, a normal career track, especially for well-to-do families. And yeah. so, it was not uncommon at all for someone to enter into the ministry, not because they were they felt called to it or because they you know there was any kind of compulsion like that, but rather because oh well I need to make a living, and as a result of that I guess I'll become a, a minister. Yeah, that happened a lot in the 16th century. Yeah,
0: and not just in Lutheran. Circles. In the 17th century.
1: Yeah, no this this was a common problem everywhere. And it really wasn't until the separation of the seminary from the the university that this became less of a problem although it still happens today too i would argue just not as often but the the point overall is still there you know is the spiritual qualifications of a man you know what is the role of that when it comes to calling a pastor right and Spaders arguing it's all important because he needs to be, he needs to be a Christian.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. And then the sixth proposal: it's going to deal with sermons. That sermons be so prepared by all that their purpose, namely faith and its fruit, may be achieved in the hearers to the greatest possible degree. So, essentially, the sermon should be preached uh, with its audience in mind. Right. That they be able to that it be preached in a way that they can understand it that you're not demonstrating your own eloquence or your own qualifications, but that you are preaching in a language that they can hear and understand.
1: Right. Which, of course, is something that we should consider for our own time as well.
0: Well, yeah, and I mean, many of these we should, because I think we're living in a very similar age, maybe even worse than in Spanier's day. And now we're not fighting turf religious wars, but we are fighting a cultural war with the side of demons versus the side of Christ. And within Lutheranism, we are perpetually fighting our theological battles regarding the place of the law and things like that. And oftentimes we forget that the people we're preaching to are not robots, they're human beings. Right. And that it's going to take work to teach them, and it takes work ourselves to learn and to grow in the Word as well. So I I honestly believe that much of these proposals, not everything, big caveat there. Especially in in our modern in our modern uh, situation, we need to look at a lot of these. I, uh, preaching is one too, and we've talked a lot about preaching on the uh, podcast. You know, who are we preaching to? What is the purpose of a sermon? All things we need to think about, and we always have to have the hearer in mind. There, there are those zealots who are going to tell us, "Well, you can't determine what the word does." Hundred percent true, but what they mean is literally you can't have a point in the sermon i guess that you expect people to understand <laughs> that you can't preach to exhort well of course you can every sermon in the bible is that way every great sermon jesus in the bible, does jesus does so you've turned the sermon into a mystery look you're using god is working through human speech to bring about the work of the holy spirit that's how this works and so that that you should your job as a preacher is to preach in a language that people can understand it's akin to if you preach in an unknown tongue and there's no interpreter, who is edified by that? Right. And so that, that should not be a, a strange thing for us. You know, we don't need to preach the same sermon every week. Preach the gospel every week, but it doesn't have to be the same sermon. And, and maybe we should move more and more away from just our own shorthand, as people don't understand that, and just take the time to explain what our terminology means to take the time to teach these things because we can't assume religious knowledge anymore. Right.
1: Right. Well, and I think, I think, you know, all of his points in one way or another, they do have something to say to our own situation. I mean, I think for example, with the fifth proposal where he's talking about, you know, the qualifications of the ministry and, and the, the need for ministers, for example, to be, and to have a living faith, I almost said to be regenerate. That's a, that's a whole nother, a whole other thing. But the point being that even we as pastors need to examine ourselves, to look at our own life, to consider, you know, where we are, to consider what it means to walk as a Christian, and to put those things into practice. Because, you know, just because we occupy the office doesn't give us, you know, an automatic pass or something like
0: that. Well, yeah, and, you know, that's how we end up with the aloof you know, Ivory Tower pastor, which is more of a straw man than anything, what we have too often is the businessman pastor. We have the 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 white collar wannabe executive pastor. And we're called we're we're called to be blue collar whether we like it or not. We're called to get our hands dirty, to be down in there with the people and to not be afraid of that. And if we're going to put this sort of academic wall between us and what we're teaching or if or if we're going to teach at such a level that people can't understand it, then we are noisy gongs and clanging symbols. We're not carrying out our calling. Uh, we shouldn't dumb things down, but we should teach patiently and teach in a way that people can understand, not to impress them with right. our knowledge. And nobody's that impressed anyway, folks. But but <laughs> simply so that they would grow in the knowledge of God. Same thing for us too, you know. Just the simple reading of Scripture, a simple devotional life. Um is better than one uh, where you're always parsing all the time and completely distracted by something, you know, right. Um, right. it can become, it can become just a, an obstacle for you too.
1: We don't want to treat the Bible purely as just some sort of work tool that we only crack open whenever, you know, we need to prepare a sermon.
0: Yeah. purely as an academic text.
1: Right. You know, I've read so much Greek I've forgotten how to speak English kind of a thing. You know, <laughs> right. Right.
0: Just, just crack open your Bible. Read
1: it. Even as pastors, that's what we need. We need the living word. And that's really, really, that's what Schreiner's calling for is a return to the word, a return to simplicity, and a return to an increased devotion in that word.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, any final words, Zellen, before we wrap up this episode?
1: Well, now that we've thoroughly lost all of our audience because we talked about (laughs) Pietism. If you guys want to hear more on these subjects, you know, please let us know. We'd love to investigate some of these other things, maybe even talk about some of the future of Pietism. But I I do think that this is a very good beginning for these questions because dealing with Spanier himself and also trying to get away from some of these misconceptions goes a long way to understanding these things, which is always something we've talked about with Work Bitly. But... That being said, I do think that what Schmeiner has to say in the Pia Desert area is something well worth our consideration and something that we should wrestle with even today.
0: Well, this has been a Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you heard and want to know more, check us out at wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or Twitter at Word Fitly. I'm Willie Grills here with Zoe and Heidi. God love you, and God bless. There is no doubt at all that the counsel of God will be accomplished without us, and what is revealed in the Scriptures will be fulfilled no matter what we may do. But we should remember that the answer which Mordecai returned to his kinswoman Esther also applies to us. If you keep silence at such a time as this, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another quarter, but you and your father's house will perish. If we to whom God restored the bright light of the gospel through his servant Luther, fail to do our duty, God will get help elsewhere and preserve his honor. Philip Spener, Pia Desideria.